Welcome back to Women in the Word. I'm Lynn Kitchens, and I know we're not in the same room, but we are still studying the same Bible, and we love the same God, so I'm just glad to be doing that with you. We are looking at the good land, the land that God had promised Israel, and they were moving forward in faith into those promises, and when we look at their journey, we realize sometimes it takes a lot of courage to step into the promises of God. I was thinking about when I met my husband, Ted, we were both serving at a youth camp in Colorado. And I can remember one of the first days we were in all the staff, this giant circle in the room. And um, I remember seeing Ted across the room. Now he was doing program. And so he looked like a cowboy every single day, something a girl from Illinois hadn't seen much. He had the hat, he had the boots, he had the chaps, he had everything. He wore those clothes every day. And I thought he was pretty cute. And so I asked someone next to me, how old is that guy right there? And they told me he's 26. And I thought, oh, he is so old. I was 19 at the time. Little did I know a year later I would be married to him. So that time of meeting him, I realized he was the answer from God to my prayer for one day marrying a godly man who also had the same goals in life spiritually that, that I had. So that was him. But dating someone who lived in Texas when I lived near Chicago uh, was not really part of my plan. That was scary. I never got to communicate much. We didn't have Skype. We didn't have FaceTime. We didn't even text. We didn't have phones. We had letters in the mail and we had a phone call once a week because it was sort of expensive. Uh, that's all we had. So that was scary. Getting married at 20 and leaving my family and all my friends and, and my home and moving to Texas, scary. Not part of my plan, but this was God's plan, and I knew I needed to step into it. So I loved Ted, but it was a hard year. I mentioned the communication. I had a lot of confusion. I had a lot of fears. What's this guy like in Texas? I don't even know what kind of guy he really is. Um, not to mention the immaturity of me being 20 years old and, and the dumb things I did along the way. But I can tell you that walking down that aisle on my wedding day had taken some steps of faith, but it was a happy day. And it was a good day that I followed the plans of God because God's plans were good plans. Sometimes... Often, it takes a lot of courage to step into the plans and the promises that God has for us. They can look terrifying. They can seem impossible. But like Israel, sometimes we just have to get our feet wet if we're going to grab hold of all that God has planned for us. He had promised Israel they would be a great nation and a great land but they would have to walk through two pretty terrifying bodies of water before they grabbed hold of that promise, not to mention other things that they faced. So we realize, unlike a lot of popular Christian teachings today, it is not God's goal for us to be happy. Although that is one of the wonderful results of living and walking with God. God's goal is for us to be holy so we can share in his kingdom, so we can ultimately 
bring him glory. And that means that the path he puts us on, the path filled with his promises, can often be one of great challenge. And he puts us through those challenges because he knows that's how I'm going to grow your faith. We heard some great faith-filled words last week from Joshua's spies when they returned from scoping out Jericho. And they said this, the Lord has given all the lands into our hands. But it would take those challenging steps of faith for Israel to take hold of it. For 40 years, Israel had struggled with disobedience in the desert in the wilderness, and so they never received the land that God had promised them. And now this next generation is standing on the banks of the Jordan River. Across that river is everything that God had promised them. Are they up to that challenge? Could their faith take them from that wilderness and then let them grab hold of that good land and what God had for them. You know, Israel had crossed a sea before. They'd crossed the Red Sea. But here's the difference. Crossing the Red Sea took that first generation out of the difficulties, away from their enemies. Crossing the Jordan River is going to put Israel right smack into the land of their enemies with really no escape. Once they're there, they are there. Should they cross it? And this river is powerful. Could they cross it? Do they have the faith to believe that God will make a way where there seems to be really no way? Look at Joshua 3, 1 with me. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Shedem, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel. Okay, so I'd like to picture ourselves as part of this two to three million people group that are about to go into this land. First of all, it's the day after the spies returned from Jericho with their good news. And so you would be asleep in your tent. But Joshua, your leader, likes to spend time with God, so he gets up early. And the next thing you do is you hear someone yelling outside, hey, we got to pack up. We're going to the banks of the Jordan River. It's about a 10-mile hike. And so you grab your stuff, you grab your pottery, you grab your robes, you grab your goats, you take down your tent, and you get in this pack of people, and you all start walking and talking. On the way, you're kind of talking mostly about the Jordan River. It was spring. The river would be in a flood stage. Rough waters would be coming from Mount Hermon um, to the Dead Sea. And the, the, the conversation would probably be, how are we supposed to get over that? How are we supposed to get across that? And someone might say, well, our parents got across the Red Sea, but you know, They'd heard that story so much, but they hadn't smelled that water. They hadn't heard the sounds of it. They haven't, hadn't felt those drops of water themselves. And they might have been saying that to each other. We are staring ourselves in the face of this rushing obstacle. Then you might get to the river and you camp along the banks and you'd be waiting nervously and you'd be listening to the sounds of this fast waters, you would be looking at its force, 
And for the next couple of days, that's pretty much all anybody would be talking about as they waited nervously on the banks of this river. I think conversations would flow and ebb just like the river was. From anger to anticipation. From fear to excitement. And asking this question to each other, what is Joshua going to do? What is going to happen to us here? Joshua knew they were on the banks of the divine promise being fulfilled. He had so much faith in God's promise of a good land in Canaan that as soon as those spies told him that good report, he packed everybody up and off they went. Joshua believed God would make a way for them to cross it both physically and spiritually because he knew they were going to have faith and accept this challenge with that faith. So let's look at verse two. At the end of three days, the officers went throughout the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go for you have not passed this way before. So this new command is shouted out to the campers, look out and watch for the Ark of the Covenant. The Levitical priests are gonna carry it and take it in front of us. We are supposed to follow it. I love it that there were no scouts going before them first into the good land. Instead, the priests of God. And there were no weapons paving the way into the good land. Instead, the powerful presence of God himself. And you remember that up to this point, Israel was led in the wilderness by pillars of fire and pillars of clouds. And now Joshua's saying, you're going to follow the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God that way. The Ark was the tabernacle chest where the presence of God dwelled while they were in the wilderness. It was also the place where his glory rested. And because of that, in the wilderness, that ark would be dead set in the center of the camp and the camp would surround it. Now God's leading them, leading them into his promises. And so following that ark of the covenant would really encourage Israel to know we are doing this with God. God is going before us. They did not need to fear getting lost. They did not need to fear whatever was going to be across that river because God was with them. They also did not need to get too close to the ark. 2,000 cubits is about a half a mile long. Why so far away from the ark? I think there's a number of reasons. One, to remind them, hey, this ark is sacred because it represents the holiness of God. We should never treat the almighty God casually or without any kind of reverence. He's not the man upstairs. He is the sovereign God of all the earth. And then this distance also would give many more people the ability to see the ark and follow it well. So let's look at verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And I thought, I bet Joshua loved spreading that word. 
Tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you and for you. You know, 40 years earlier, Joshua had basically said the same thing to Israel. When he and Caleb and 10 others had scouted out the land and Joshua and Caleb were ready to take that land and they believed in God's power, but most of Israel believed in the power of their enemies as being stronger than the power of their own God. And so for 40 years, they faced the consequence of their unbelief, living in the wilderness until that generation had died out. And now here's Joshua again, 40 years later. He has that same sturdy faith that he had back then. He believed a miracle from God would fulfill that past promise made to them through Abraham many years before. And this generation is eager to believe it. So now it's the night before the crossing, an exciting night for everyone. I don't know that anyone could have slept that night. I don't think they would have. They were also supposed to prepare themselves spiritually and expect wonders from God. So when Joshua said, consecrate yourselves, he meant sanctify yourselves, prepare yourself for a manifestation of the living God. And we can do that by separating ourselves from all things that are unholy, all things that are unclean and seek God's holiness. And secondly, he gave them the promise of those miraculous power of God the next day. This was supposed to be their expectation. This was supposed to be their meditation that night before. You know, the other day we had my daughter's family for dinner and my daughter had a really bad headache, so she didn't come. So it was her husband, Brooks, and her two girls, Alice and Sylvie. Alice is six and Brooks said at the dinner table, Alice, would you pray for your mom's headache? And she immediately bowed her head and said, God, we just pray you get rid of that headache. We pray when she wakes up in the morning, there won't be one headache left in her head. And she said it with this power and strength. And I thought she had so much confidence in the power of God and what he could do. And I love that. You know, throughout our lives, we are always on a journey into the promises of God. Those promises are vast beyond measure. They include the promises that God never leaves us. He's our helper, our healer, our teacher, our friend. He guides us. He loves us. He forgives us. He promises us peace and comfort and purpose in life. And sometimes we just travel to the banks of those promises and then we stop. And I thought, why do we stop? Why do I sometimes stop? And so I thought we would look in the backpacks of what the Israelites had when they were camped on the banks of that river. What to take on our journey into God's promises when we look at Israel. First thing, Joshua said you have to bring consecration, which we just talked about. Israel is about to experience God's faithfulness because they are choosing to be faithful to him. They are, obeying, they are obeying the plans he has for them. 
which means they've separated themselves from all that opposes God's holiness and God's plans. Look at Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect before God. We can't adopt the world's ways, ignoring God's plans, ignoring God's ways, and then expect to find ourselves coming out of the wilderness, which, by the way, is a wilderness we have created ourselves, because we are living life as lost people live. We are meant to live life differently than the rest of the world if we want to get out of our wilderness and go to a good land, the land of God's promises. Secondly, we always need to bring God's map, his words. If we seek his promises, it's right here for us. Joshua was listening for God's words to move forward. As soon as he heard them, he shared them with the people of Israel. We have these words right here. It's our Bible. It's God's map. And we all are thinking right now, I know that. I've known that forever as soon as I became a Christian. But do we really know that? If we knew the extent of what it can do for us, I think we would be disciplined and diligent to make it a priority as a map for every day of our life. Without studying this map, we get on wrong paths. We go in wrong directions. How do we know we're in a wrong direction if we're not in God's map? How do we know even what God wants to offer us if we aren't reading God's map. I remember once sharing my testimony with a non-believer and I was telling them my story and I was also telling the gospel to them because that's what the story is. And this person looked at me and said, Lynn, I'm really happy for you that that's how you found God, but that's not the way everyone will find God. That's your way. And I could say back to them, it's not my way. It's God's way because it's in the word of God. This is how God says we come to him. But our person that I was talking with had never opened this Bible up, had never opened up God's map. And so their feet were firmly set on a path going in the wrong direction. And here's the sad truth about that. This can happen even to Christians. And it happens all the time. Look at Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. In other words, without that faith in God's word, without hearing God's word, our faith is going to stay very small. Without a diet of God's word, we don't grow. And I think about all the harsh circumstances that Israel faced Year after year, when they ignored the words of God, it's the same dry desert we face when we rarely open God's map. Thirdly, we also need to bring faith. Faith is simply believing God's promises are true. Unbelief says, let's go back to where it's safe. That was the first generation. Faith says, let's go forward to where God is working. 
That's the second generation. Unless we step out in faith in our lives, we won't really make much of a difference in this world. We won't make much progress in living for Christ and serving Christ. I was thinking, who wants to die and know that people said about you, was she a Christian? I think so. Maybe. Who wants to die like that? Wouldn't you rather say, remember this faith that she had? Remember what she did? Remember how God used her here? Remember her prayers? Remember the things she said about God? Of course she was a Christian. She loved God. Here's another great thing. If we don't have faith, which often I don't, we can ask God for it. It's wonderful, and he can set that faith and grow that faith. He loves to honor that prayer in our lives. I thought about the father with the demon-possessed boy in Mark 9, and he goes to Jesus and says, hey, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. I can't imagine saying that to Jesus. If you could do anything, that's the amount of faith this father had. And Jesus looked at him and said, if I can, Anything's possible for those who believe. And immediately the father said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. That is something God can do for us. I feel like in all our lives, and in mine as well, sometimes God asks us to do things that are pretty scary. One of those times in my life, and I remember feeling so overwhelmed that I actually was trembling. And so I found a little room and I went in and I did this father's prayer. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. And immediately that peace that passes understanding came over me and gave me the strength to move forward in faith to what God had in store for me. I didn't move forward in my own strength. I moved forward in God's strength with faith. We can set up our spiritual tents on the banks of some rough and frightening rivers. And we can face those rivers, those trials, with a divine confidence because we know God's our guide. He is our guide and he will guide us through every trial. And in those trials, he's growing our faith. Look at James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Okay, they're about to step into the promise. Let's look at verse 6. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Okay, the sun may have risen on that day like any other day. But nothing else was ordinary. First, the Ark of the Covenant 
passed by the people. And I bet you the people were standing on tiptoe, stretching their necks. I bet children were sitting on shoulders as they were trying to get a good glimpse of that presence of God passing them, knowing this is going to be a momentous and holy day before the Lord. And so I wonder what else they were thinking as it passed by. I think some would say, this is the day we inherit the land after 40 years in the wilderness. This is the day our parents hoped for. This is the day when our lives will forever change. And maybe some of them would say, this is the day we don't have to eat manna anymore. And they'd be glad for that. This is the day the Lord will faithfully fulfill his promise that he made to us. And they would watch that ark go by. They would watch the priest who held it later standing in faith in the middle of that mighty river on dry ground. And then this is the day God spoke directly to Joshua about his future. And he tells them, you will be exalted. Your leadership will be confirmed because of this miracle to all of Israel. Moses led Israel across the Red Sea. Joshua was going to lead Israel across the Jordan River. God was with Moses. God is with Joshua. And it will be very important for the nation of Israel to believe that as they live in this promised land. Let's look at verse 9. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And he said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. And he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hevites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Okay, the first thing I love about what Joshua told the people is, here's how you shall know about God. He doesn't say to the people, here's how you shall know that I'm going to be your exalted and wonderful leader. He doesn't even bring that up. He does what any spiritual leader that's really godly would do. He wants to exalt God at this time and not himself. And he tells them that you shall know that the living God is among you, not these dead gods that are in the land of Canaan we're about to conquer. Our God is alive. Our God is living. He is the true God. And the promise of his presence will become the key to the victories of Israel, just as the promise of his presence is the key to the victories in our lives. Joshua lets them know God is not only, though, the God of Israel. He said twice here, he's the God of all the earth. And this God of all the earth won't fail in driving out seven heathen groups of people who live in this land. These people are sinful to the point of extreme. They, they practice child sacrifices. They practice pagan sexual practices and connect it to worship. They attribute all of creation 
and all of life to these dead stones and sticks that they put in together into some kind of false god. And so God, as the heavenly judge of all the earth, has the authority to do, deal with their sin and his timing. One man put it this way. The question is not why God chose to destroy these sinners, but why he had let them live so long. Why all sinners are not destroyed far sooner than they are is the other question. It is grace and grace alone that allows sinners to draw one more breath of life. So here we are, Israelites about to cross over. They are also called Hebrews, which actually means to cross over. When they will cross over, all the nations will witness that Israel's God is the living God of all the earth. Look at Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, God says to Israel, you should be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a kingdom that will exalt the one true God. And then Joshua answers all those questions that the people have been talking about for a couple days on the banks of the river as he explains how they're going to cross the river. He tells them God's plans. So when the soles of the feet of the priests get to the brink of the water and they take a step in, all the river will dry up and then the rushing waters will stop. All those waters will stand up like one big heap of water. What? As crazy as that sounds to us, it sounded that crazy to them. The priests and the people, when he said that, would have been staring into the Jordan River, listening to its roar. Obeying God in this situation would be a huge test of their faith. So let's see how they respond in verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the priest's feet bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its bank throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. And let's finish by looking at verse 11. When all the people had finished passing over the Ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben and Gad and half tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the, battle for it, before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua into the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. 
And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came out of the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Israel obeyed the words of God by putting one foot in front of the other as they crossed the mighty Jordan River. And I would have to say probably that first step was a small, cautious step. And then each step they took, they obeyed more and more in more courageous ways. And when they got to the other side, 40 years of exodus were over. Just as the exodus had begun with the parting of a sea, the Red Sea, now it is finished with the parting of the Jordan River, both on dry ground. You know, the crossing of the Red Sea out of Egypt pictures the believer being delivered from the bondage of sin. The picture of the crossing of the Jordan River into the good land pictures the believer claiming the inheritance that God had planned for them. In fact, Joshua is a type of Jesus, our conqueror. He leads us also into our spiritual inheritance out of slavery of sin into God's goodness. I heard part of a song recently, and one of the lines in it says, you got chains, God's a chain breaker. That's what Jesus does for us. Takes us out of our Red Sea of bondage, enslaved to sin, and brings us into the good land that God has for us. We inherited all that God has prepared for us when Christ conquered our sins on the cross and we received him. And God has some great things he wants to give us. Look at Isaiah 64. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love them. I'm glad Jesus is our conqueror to bring us into those places. Okay, everything happened just as God said it would. When the sandals of the priests touched the waters, the waters that were rushing down about 16 miles away rose up into a tall mountain of water. Some have estimated it had been about 120 feet high. They also think the wall of water could have been two miles long. And I'm sorry, two miles wide and 16 miles long. And this water had to stand like this a pretty long time. Remember, two to three million people were crossing that river. And always standing in the middle of the river, no matter how long it took, on the dried riverbed were the priests and the ark of God. And Israel would be remembering, that's how faithful our God is. He's with us, and look what he's doing for us. And I thought about the priests, and I bet they just had the biggest smiles on their faces the whole time they were doing that. Honored to be a part of the miraculous work of God. 
Can you imagine though, what the pagans who lived in Canaan were feeling that day if they decided to go down with their fishing pole to the Jordan River? They would not have been really excited. Um, they would have been terrified. The Jordan River miracle glorified God, encouraged Israel, exalted Joshua, and terrified their enemies. Nobody was baking cookies to welcome the millions of Jews that were coming into their neighborhood. And we'll have a lot more about that in our next lessons. But we do get a foretaste of the battles that are ahead when we see 40,000 of the men crossing in their battle gear dressed for battle. These were the tribes that promised Moses that even though they had permission to stay on the other side of the Jordan because of their livestock, that they would join Israel in every battle that they would face for the sake of God and the promise. So I think about all this and think, what does the Jordan River miracle have to do with us? You know, Christians can be overcomers or be overcome. We can be victims or we can be victors. And don't you want to spend your time here on earth being an overcomer? I think it's a Christian tragedy when God's people fail to claim their inheritance from God and they wander aimlessly through life like Israel did in the wilderness. Why? Because of fear. You know, in this world, we are going to face many frightening things, many trials, things that feel like rushing, loud, powerful waters. One step of faith into those mighty challenges, those mighty waters, can lead us into many steps of faith into a good land. Taking those small steps will lead to bigger steps. We grow our faith by accepting and walking through the challenges that God allows or brings our way. We do it one step at a time and we'll find out that he's faithful and he's our guide and his presence is with us. It's wonderful to find yourself in a good land as an overcomer and as a victor who holds hands with God. What a wonderful thing. That's called the abundant life. That's living a life of faith. Look at 1 John 5. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Okay, so sometimes I'm so glad when I get through a dark trial that I just run on ahead happily without turning around to thank and look at the fact that God is the one who brought me through it. So Israel has just been involved in one of the greatest miracles ever and how awful it would have been if they didn't turn around and recognize God in it. But they did. They did the right thing. Instead, they set up two memorials to remember God's faithfulness to them at the Jordan River. First, Joshua had one man from each of the 12 tribes gather 12 stones from the area in the middle of the river where the ark and the priests were. And they were to take those stones out of the river and bring them to where they lodged that night. A few days later, they would carry them eight miles to the town of Gilgal where they would set up camp. Joshua set those stones up as a memorial and told the Israelites then, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Talk about God. 
tell him how he took us across this mighty river on dry ground. And he did the same thing that he did to our parents in the Red Sea. And then tell your children this so that everyone on earth can know this is God. This is the living one true God. And you should fear this God forever. So 12 stones would teach Israel families and all the nations who God is and how powerful he is. That night as Israel made their first camp in the promised land, I was thinking what that would feel like. You got across the Jordan River, now it's getting dark and everybody's camping out there and you're in a strange land just looking around. And you might have let fear come back into your hearts. But then if you rolled over in your tent and looked out your tent door and saw that memorial with the 12 stones, you would remember, oh, how, how can I be fearful when God has done such a great thing for us? Secondly, Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the river and left them there to be under the water. It was the same place where the priests and the Ark of the Covenant stood. And it seems like Joshua did this on his own. Uh, maybe while the 12 men were grabbing stones to take out of the river, Joshua's grabbing his own 12 stones and putting them right where the ark had been and leaving them there as a memorial to God. 12 stones in the river marked the place of the ark and in Joshua's mind, God's faithfulness as well. This was the very place God kept his promise and Joshua's like, I've got to build a memorial right there. I also think... God was bringing them to this new place. And I think we can look at Joshua's stones as also symbolizing Israel's past life was buried and a new life awaited them. They were never to go back. You know, one day another promise to Israel would be fulfilled in this very same area. And this is the promise of a Messiah. In this very area, one day, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, would be baptized by John the Baptist. And because we believe in the Savior, our old lives were also buried. We are never to go back. We are to move forward in faith into a new life. Look at Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is where Israel found themselves walking also in newness of life, never to go back, just like we should. Israel set up stones to tell others about the greatness of God. And if we did that today, nobody would really understand what a pile of stones was supposed to mean. So here's the best way we can visibly show people how great God is. It's how we decide to live our lives in, for, in front of all people. We present our lives as living memorials to God's grace 
and to God's power. That's our memorial. Our hope is that our lives can point people to the living God. Look at Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we can learn from Israel on the banks of the Jordan. Life is hard, but God can make a way where there seems to be no way. We follow him in faith. Here's a poem about faith. The night was long. The shadows spread as far as my eyes could see. I stretched my hands out to Jesus Christ and he walked through the dark with me. Out of the dimness, at last we came, our feet on the warming sod, and I saw by the light of his wondrous eyes that I walked with the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we give you all glory because we know you take our lives and make them memorials to you in your power and in your faithfulness. We commit our lives to you and ask that we would do that in a mighty way every day that we wake up. And we thank you, Father, that you are a God of miracles and powers and the one true living God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.